Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The year is 1959. And Mr. Lincoln, you got something hanging from your nose. Oh, it's a man in a damn attractive suit. The movie North by Northwest. Welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. Amy Nicholson is still away at the Toronto Film Festival. She will be joining me in just a bit to talk about North by Northwest, which is today's film. But this is the podcast where every week we look at a classic film on the AFI's top 100 list. We determine if it's worth watching. Does it still hold up? And how has it influenced the filmmakers of today? Our film today is North by Northwest. We're going to be talking about that in just a little bit. But let's go back to last week's episode on the waterfront to hear what you had to say about that. Uh, before we get into that, though, want to remind you that we are doing a show live here in Los Angeles at the Alamo Draft House, our monthly show. This one is celebrating Beatles. Beatles in film. It's the 50th anniversary of Abbey Road. And what better way to celebrate the Beatles than to see how they've affected film? And we're going to be approaching that in a couple different ways. Should A Hard Day's Night be on the list? What do you think? Uh, are there other performances that should be on the list? Other Beatles films? Anyway, come on out to the Alamo Draft House. That's in downtown LA on September 26th. There are only a handful of seats left, uh, but just go to the Alamo website or get the Alamo app and come and see us. By the way, a little tip for you. Uh, if it looks like the only seats available are handicap rows, you can get those seats if every other seat is taken. That is a, a rule that the Alamo has. Um, so there you go. Um, and a big thank you to uh, Carly Severin, who wrote this amazing piece uh, about how did this get made, me and unspooled for uh, KQED. It was a great uh, piece uh, that we got to speak a lot about, uh, films we love, and of course, my amazing co-host, Amy Nicholson, who is just uh, the best. She's the bee's knees, uh, and uh, I could speak about her uh, all day long. Anyway, uh, people, let's speak about On the Waterfront. 
Douglas Hayer writes, As a counterpoint to On the Waterfront, I would recommend seeing Rafifi, a 1955 French heist film directed by blacklisted director Jules Dassan. There's a scene that shows what Dassan thinks of those who name names. Ooh, I like it. I don't know what that means. I am sure it's bad. I, I, I picture it as being almost like that scene in uh, Casino Royale with James Bond, where they're kind of hitting him from below the seat uh, on his balls. That's what I kind of, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, anyway, Rick Jones writes, uh, I dreamed I was at a bar where people kept on asking me trivia questions about Peter O'Toole. No, he never won an Oscar. Then I woke up and I realized I was listening to Unspooled. Uh, well, that's great. I'm glad that we've affected your dreams and given you panic about, uh, or not panic, I guess you were winning that trivia contest. So good on you. JB Dahl writes, got a little teary-eyed on the train this morning. Let's to the I could have been a contender scene. Can I just say Brando definitely deserved that Oscar solely on the basis of being able to make the line a one-way ticket to Palookaville totally devastating. You know, I absolutely agree with you. Like We talked about this last week. It's one of those rare films where it's been parodied so much that you felt like by the time you get to that scene, it would have no weight, but it had so much weight. Um, and it was really... Uh, I was kind of blown away by it because I'd seen the scenes. I, I'd heard him say it, but the context and, and the full scene and understanding the relationships just brings so much more to it. Michael Van Wagenen writes, I'm surprised that Paul compared Terry to Rocky, but missed a more apt and obvious top 100 connection. Terry is an alternative universe butch from Pulp Fiction who's in the same situation and just took a different path. Whoa, Michael, way to go. You know, I I don't often think of Pulp Fiction as a boxing movie. You're totally right. And we just talked about Butch. Uh, you're That's a great, uh, a great kind of observation. And I wonder in any way if Quentin Tarantino was maybe inspired by On the Waterfront for that, the Butch character. I, I Maybe. Who knows? Um, now, as we go into talking about uh, another Hitchcock film today, North by Northwest, we decided to ask you what your favorite Hitchcock film was. There's a few on this list, but is your favorite Hitchcock one on this list? So let's see what you had to say. My favorite Hitchcock is Shadow of a Doubt. The performances are great. It's got some really weird, interesting character dynamics that I love. And the way that it combines the small town atmosphere with these darker, morbid undertones is perfect for the story of finding out that someone you love and trust is dangerous. Well, my favorite movie of the Alfred Hitchcock is Rear Window. It's like that single setting. Um, when you first mentioned the question, all I could think of was Rebecca. Mrs. Danvers trying to you know, coax Joan Fontaine to leap out a window to her death. Plus, this movie has an incredible twist. Ugh, Rebecca all the way. Last year, I had the fortune to see uh, Dial M for Murder in 3D. So I'm going to say that's my favorite Hitchcock movie. Not to sound like a hipster, but I think my favorite Hitchcock movie is Lifeboats. I love how it's all just set on a lifeboat, but it's so gripping and fascinating to see the the changes that these characters are forced to go through on this really scary journey. Wow, these are all great answers. I mean, Rebecca, the man who knew too much, Dial M for Murder, uh, Lifeboat is a fantastic Hitchcock film. It's funny, they're not as glossy, all the ones that you kind of, you know, you mentioned. They're a little bit more, I mean, Dial M for Murder, I think, was a little bit like, but um I think that the best Hitchcock are kind of the more quieter Hitchcock. So, um, hmm, if I was to pick one, I, you know, I, I'm still kind of all over the board. I, you know, we're going to talk about this in a, in a little bit here on the show. But I, I definitely think North by Northwest holds a special spot for me because it was my 
first Hitchcock that I really loved and enjoyed and got me into Hitchcock. And I feel like sometimes the movie that gets you in your gateway uh, film is always your favorite. So uh, I have to say that while that may be my favorite, it's not, I don't think, his best even though I think it's very good. Anyway, we're going to get into North by Northwest, and don't be nervous. Like, Paul, what are you saying? I love the film. I'm just saying in comparison to his whole uh, filmography. Uh, let's get uh, the, uh, the the film reel spooling as we go into our feature presentation. It's 1959. Come on in. The crop-dusted cornfield is just fine. The Cuban president, Batista, resigns and Fidel Castro takes over. A plane-carrying Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper crashes in an Iowa cornfield. The music died along with them on that day. Alaska and Hawaii are admitted into the Union, becoming the 49th and 50th states. Americans are first introduced to Con Air blow dryers, Troll Dolls, and Barbies. The popular movies are Some Like It Hot, Ben-Hur, both AFI films, and today's film, which is, of course, North by Northwest. It punches in at number 55 on the AFI Top 100 list in 2007, having slipped 15 points since its 1997 ranking of number 40. Amy, North by Northwest, who's in it? What's it about? North by Northwest. This is one of our four Hitchcocks on the list. This is Hitchcock at his biggest, boldest, and splashiest. It has... Our eternal friend, it feels like, in the yeah. past couple months, Cary Grant, starring as an advertising man, Roger Thornhill, who is mistaken for a CIA man, FBI man, some sort of alphabet suit man who does not really exist. Super spy. Super spy. And he is chased from New York to Mount Rushmore, accompanied by Eva Marie Saint as a woman of many, many, many duplicitous means, James Mason, and a very, very young Martin Landau making his movie debut. It is a... Uh, Giant and epic and massive and everything. It is written by Ernest Lehman, who did like Sound of Music and West Side Story, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. This is a juggernaut of a Hitchcock film. Yeah, and I'd also say it's almost the precursor to a James Bond film in a way. Very much so. You Very know, much so. James Bond shows up three years later on film, feeling exactly like this, wearing cool suits, romancing women who may not have as good intentions in mind. Well, I put that together because this is one of the first uh, Hitchcock movies that I saw as a kid, that I watched a lot. I couldn't tell you a thing about the plot as I sat down to watch it this time. I remember all the big moments. And what struck me about it was it feels... The DNA of this movie is so apparent. I mean, from Mission Impossible to James Bond. And it has this air that I wasn't expecting from it, which was, it's very funny. I mean, it's a comedy. Yeah, this is something we've touched on a little bit in our earlier two Hitchcock episodes on Vertigo and on and on Psycho, is that I think of him as a really funny guy. And even though Vertigo is considered like his best one on this list, it's not funny in the no. way that like the early Hitchcocks definitely are. And this one, this one is still very, 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 very funny. But this oddly comes after Vertigo, right? It does. Yeah. And it's, this is one sandwich. If people are trying to put the chronology in their head, it's right between Vertigo and Psycho. And this movie, I think, was originally supposed to star our dear, dear friend, the BDE man himself, Jimmy Stewart. But because of the poor reception of Vertigo, they switch up the casting, put Cary Grant in the role. And I think it's a better movie with Cary Grant at the centerpiece of it because he is funnier. I think he brings you in a little bit in a way that Jimmy Stewart, I think, would be the everyman, absolutely the everyman. But I think it would feel a little bit more like a thriller and less of this kind of 
bigger, flashier film. That's what we're talking about. Like this is a this is a fun. I know there was no summer blockbuster at this point, but it feels like that. It feels like there's romance, there's action. Um, and He's, I mean, Cary Grant is James Bond in this movie. There's a scene where Cary Grant tries to escape from a hospital room, burst through the hospital room of the lady next door, and mm-hmm. her reaction is completely James Bond. Stop! Oh, excuse me. Stop. Ah. <laughs> like, is he owed a joke to him that women find him so sexy? Well, you know, I was thinking about Cary Grant. We talked about him in a few episodes ago um, about being this man that's um, safe. He doesn't feel like the man that's going to, you know, grab you and, and plant his lips on you. But I feel like in this movie, he's kind of breaking a little bit of that mold. He feels, um, yes, he's definitely being put upon throughout this movie, but he feels a little bit more confident. And I think it's the attitude of being the ad exec, his dialogue. I was like, I wrote down, and I don't know if I can even say this. I'm like, he's like a little bitch in this movie. Like he's just making all these snide remarks at every moment. Like he's taking nothing seriously. Like he is just kind of a snark monster. I mean, he's kind of a cad. Like I pulled a couple of moments from the beginning of the movie because it's just him establishing who he is and how he thinks he can talk his way out of everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is him just talking his way into stealing somebody's cab. I have a very sick woman here. You don't mind, do you? Well, no. Thank I mean, very much. perfectly all right. First stop the plaza. Don't throw the flag. Poor man. Oh, come, come, come. I mean, I'm a happy man. I made him feel like a good Samaritan. You knew you were lying. Ah, uh, Maggie, in the world of advertising, there's no such thing as a lie. There's only the expedient exaggeration. You ought to know that. I, I mean, love that line. <laughs> the expedient exaggeration. He thinks he can talk himself into going on a diet by just writing think thin on a notepad. And then even when he gets kidnapped by these these nasty heavies, he thinks he can talk his way out of this one. Don't tell me where we're going. Surprise me. You know, I left some friends back there in the oak bar. They're going to think I'm awfully rude. I mean, uh, couldn't we stop off at a drugstore for a moment so that I can explain I'm being uh, kidnapped? I mean, his confident sense of humor, like Hitchcock loves to do these movies where a man is mistaken for someone and must yeah. go on the run. You know, 39 Steps are my personal quiet favorite saboteur. It. It, it, this is one where it's not just that arc of it, but it's also a man who's overconfident being brought down by this giant system of corruption. Even his own government is corrupt. And that is the one thing he can't talk himself out of. Well, the one thing that I think you need from a character to be put in this position is a reason to continue forward, right? This kind of confident, cocky character is going to unravel the mystery, right? He's not going to be pushed over. And I think in many respects, he is pushing forward the plot in a way to save face. Like after the crop duster scene, he goes back to the hotel to see Eve Marie Saint to be like, uh, you kind of screwed me over here. What happened? Like, you know, he's never going to give up. And I love that about this character. It really is incredibly endearing. And he looks great in this suit. I mean, this suit goes through a lot. And I would say for a man running from uh, the police and every organization out there, he never really tries to blend in. I mean, and I, and I like that. It's just like, nope, I'm wearing the suit. Occasionally, uh, I'll put on one other outfit, but I'm back in the suit all the time. And it only at one point do just the trousers and jacket get pressed for 15 minutes. Wait, I want to actually ask you about this because 
You know, when I was watching this movie, I was having that little glitch again of being like, oh, man, I have a hard time in vintage movies telling when somebody is not dressed appropriately. Mm -hmm. You know, because like another movie that uh, Cary Grant did with Hitchcock a couple years before this to catch a thief, a movie I really, 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 really love. He shows up in a fancy restaurant wearing this striped shirt. And because he's Cary Grant, I think he looks fantastic. And I was thinking, oh, the movie wants me to know that he's underdressed for this restaurant. But I can't really process that because it's Cary Grant looking more stylish than I would look if I went to a restaurant today. Yeah. Because people just dress up here so much. I mean, when he goes to, to see like... Mount Rushmore, all of these women are in high heels, you know? And I was thinking how fun it is to see a character who's climbing things, like acting like a cat burglar on top of this like modernist building trying to break in, but he's doing it in suits. And it made me think, you know, like the Rockets still wear jeans. Right. This is much more impressive to me. He's in loafers and he's like gallivanting around and not dying. I love that. I mean, but that's James Bond, right? James Bond, the tuxedo, like James Bond always looks good. Yes, he'll put on some sort of scuba suit or some sort of, you know, plain suit, but he always looks good because it does not make sense for him to wear the same outfit throughout the entire duration. I just figured back then people didn't bathe that much. They're like, well, you know, I'll put on a clean (laughs) pair of undershirts. He has yellow underwear. Like, all right, well done. I love those yellow underwear and the camera kind of like really doesn't try to grab it. Just guess what? There's just a little bit. Just a little bit. But I mean, this is what I want to know from your opinion because I don't know that much about men's fashion. Mm -hmm. Like this suit. And I do. You do. I mean, mm-hmm. look at you now. You're wearing yeah. a lovely gray T-shirt. You're yeah. wearing the gray T-shirt of suits. <laughs> and I keep I keep reading that men's magazines, men's f- like fashion obsessives mm. continually say that this exact suit in this movie is mm. the greatest suit that anybody ever wore in a movie. Oh, it, it has to be. I mean, it's iconic. You look at it and you're like, I want to wear that suit. I, what that's makes a, it so great? I think it's the cut. It's very Mad Men, right? When you look at Mad Men, I think that this is the similar type of style and look that they are achieving too. I think a gray suit with a white shirt and a, and a black tie looks good on any man. I think it just is a, it's a, it's a good looking suit. It's, it kind of feels not incredibly formal, but not incredibly relaxed. I can't speak to it more than I have a gray suit that I absolutely love. And when I saw this, I was like, damn, he looks good in this suit. I mean, it's crazy. Like, I've been trying to really get the appeal of this suit. You don't like, feel the appeal at oh, I all? Think, I think it's lovely. But to me, it also just looks like a suit. You know? Oh, wow. I think I, it fits him really well. And so I've been trying to read about it. And people are like, well, part of the secret of the suit is that he's wearing matching socks with the suit. So he mm. just has one extended line of gray that he's not wearing a belt. He's not breaking it up. It makes him look very lanky. That he's wearing I don't wear a belt with a suit. Cover, color shoes, a little mm. bit of red-brown. I don't think it's that deep, Amy. I think... The style of this period is, I think, the style in which men were dressed classically the best that they've ever been dressed, right? They, like, again, you see all the fawning over Mad Men. It's exactly the same style, that same idea. I mean, this is, you look at this movie, Don Draper could be walking down to the plaza at the same time he's jumping into a cab. And okay, I think but that, yes, yeah. but I think at the same time, there's a little bit of among the suitmen of the world. Okay. There's a little bit of, like, Don Draper wishes. You know, because one of the stories I read about the making of this film is that Hitchcock secretly went to Martin Landau, who plays, you know, the evil heavy Leonard. Mm -hmm. And he says, you're the only man in this movie who's going to have a better suit than Cary Grant. Oh, And he made him a better suit than Cary Grant. And he didn't tell Cary Grant about it. And Cary Grant didn't know who Martin Landau was yet because he hadn't acted against Mm -hmm. him. And Martin Landau was brand new. And so he had Martin Landau just walk through one of the crowd scenes on the first day of shooting without even having the camera follow him just to have him there in his wonderful suit. And Martin Landau would tell the story about how a man just came up and tapped him on the shoulder. And he was like, excuse me, where did you get that suit? And it was Cary Grant's man. And Cary Grant's man was like 
sent over there because it was an amazing suit and Cary Grant was mad about it. And he just thought he was some extra. Wow. Yeah. I love it. That- Cary Grant had these, he's acting and he's like, hold on, that man over there has a better suit than me. <laughs> and he said, you can only get the suit in one of two places, Beverly Hills or Hong Kong, which is it? It's Beverly Hills. Wow. Well, did you know that the suit actually inspired a short story? Uh, <laughs> it, it, it literally is um, called Cary Grant's Suit, which recounts the movie's plot from the viewpoint of of the suit, uh, and it was written by Todd McEwen. Uh, I love that that's out there. I really want to read that. And I found it. Do you want to know a little bit about yeah, it? Yeah, sure. All right, all right. Because I, I was like, when I read that too, I was like, oh my God, a, a story about a suit? Yeah. It's got a lot of all caps. Okay. There's a lot of all caps just Of course, the suit, I mean, the suit is excited <laughs> by the whole thing. But here's part of what Todd McEwen writes. He says, North by Northwest isn't about what happens to Cary Grant. It's about what happens to his suit. His suit has the adventures, a gorgeous New York suit threading its way through America. <laughs> Nothing bad happens to the suit until one of the greasy henchmen grasps Carrie by the shoulder. We're already in love with this suit, and it feels like a real violation. It would be too traumatic to see this suit getting totaled. That would be way beyond Hitchcock's level of sadism. And then he says that after Cary Grant gets fake shot in the hospital and the professor gives him a new set of clothes, he says, then you get the thrill of a badly dressed Cary Grant and the situation is now a real emergency. <laughs> he also talks a lot about the white shirt and how like it's a I mean, Perfect shirt. I love, I love this look uh, to a degree that I can't even tell you. Um, and I don't know why it's built into me. Um, also, I see it in Collateral. Remember that movie with Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx? It's a very different character. Tom Cruise is the heavy in that. Um, but it's totally inspired, uh, I think, by that suit. The same kind of look. It's, it's um, the way I see and think about that movie is I think about Tom Cruise in that suit. Um, and I have to say, I don't think Alfred Hitchcock would have given Jimmy Stewart that suit. I don't think that Jimmy Stewart could have pulled off that suit. I don't He'd think he'd need extra room. I th- well, yeah, uh, down below. Um, but I think that Cary Grant is as important as the suit, if that makes sense. Like his body in the suit, he just looks perfectly dapper, perfectly tan. The hair is great. He's Everything so is, tan. He's very tan. Um, and it's fun to see him now not in uh, in black and white after we just saw him in black and white just recently. Um, but it seems like Hitchcock was obsessed with clothing. And we're talking about Eve Marie Saint, who's also in this movie. She was also in On the Waterfront. And I pulled this clip about Hitchcock versus Kazan, and it will all tie into this conversation. You'll see. It's a completely different role from Edie on the Waterfront. It was a sexy spy lady, and um, what lady doesn't want to be a sexy spy lady? And I love, I love the idea. Uh, I didn't get much direction uh, from Mr. Hitchcock as I did from Mr. Kazan, but he was interested in how the spy lady dressed. Now that might sound strange, but it helped me develop that character of the spy lady. He cared about the hair, the makeup, the earrings, the shoes, certainly the dresses. And from what he felt about the spy lady, how she should look, that helped me with the spy lady. So I thought that was interesting that Hitchcock was really obsessed, and it goes to what you said about Martin Lando, obsessed about how these characters looked. Yeah, just the way he forced Kim Novak to wear black shoes, even though she didn't want to wear black mm. shoes. The old black shoe scandal. I mean, there's this story about from this out of North by Northwest where Eva Marie Saint was in that beautiful kind of flowered dress that mm-hmm. she wears when she's in the hotel room. 
and that she's drinking a cup, a cup of coffee from a styrofoam cup. And Hitchcock comes over and gets mad at her. And he's like, even we're saying, A, you don't get your coffee. We have somebody to get your coffee for you. And B, you drink from a porcelain cup and a saucer. You're wearing a $3,000 dress. And I do not want the extras to see you drinking from styrofoam. Wow. I mean, that's brave. She also said, like, the only real direction that he gave her in this film. He said, one, lower your voice. Two, don't use your hands. And three, always look in Cary Grant's eyes. And I can say... I would believe that that's all the direction he gave her because, and I hate to say this, I don't think she's that compelling in this movie. Really? Sorry. Whoa! Uh, wow! I thought she was much better in in On the Waterfront. Oh, I I feel completely the opposite. Really? I think she is incredibly cool. Like she's got this energy here that I feel like people are always trying to duplicate. This idea of being cool. She is cool and she seems effortless in doing it like you know there's something behind her eyes you also feel like you're engaged by her she's not sharing everything she's flirty without being forward she she's flirty me- without being forward she's like get in my train car well, get in my train car and bone me i will but i guess like, my desperate. book is boring. Maybe, my book is boring. Make my book less boring, Cary Grant. Maybe it's desperate. Like, she she just seems like a confident woman who knows what she wants. And I just wrote down, she had this energy that I feel like we're often, and this is, like, we can get into a much bigger conversation about this. I think that female characters in action movies are incredibly underwritten for the most part, you know, when they're not the lead. And it's like, I'm hot and I shoot people. Right. And and I think sometimes it's like, you're cool because you shoot people, but there's no sense of cool besides like the outfit and the way that they are. And I actually I can't felt- help it. I was just a ballerina trained to be an assassin. Hey, oh. hey. Don't spoil Black Widow, the movie, for me. Um, but oh, my God. I was thinking of Red Sparrow. But I know, there's so which, many ballerina turned assassins. Well, I'm guessing that that's going to be Black Widow, the movie. Oh, my God. Um, which Red Sparrow does have a lot of I'm just flexible and I murder. But I think what I liked about this character was there was an energy to her. There was something there because at the end when she starts to fall apart – when she gets the matchbook and she goes back for the earrings and she's going to the plane, you see the demeanor drop and it goes so low that it actually made me appreciate how high she was playing in the cool factor. I, I am a fan of this performance. I, I just think that like, it's something that we try to get in there, but I think the writing here is not necessarily the best for her, great for a lot of other characters, but she plays the writing in a way that uh, made it exciting to me. See, I thought she was too frozen. Okay. I do like the moment when you see her kind of crack a little bit at the end with Mm -hmm. the earring thing. Maybe part of the problem is I watched North by Northwest again right after I watched To Catch a Thief again because I was like, I'm going to be on a Cary Grant Hitchcock kick. Yeah. And Grace Kelly in To Catch a Thief. When do you have the time, Amy? When do you have the time? Oh, I just do a lot of cocaine. You are reading books. You are my (laughs) idol. I am amazed by all these. You have two children and a wife. I have a cat. It's fine. (laughs) But Um, Grace Kelly is so vibrant and alive in To Catch a Thief. She's so funny. She's so sexy. She's so everything that, like, I could not read really get into Eva Marie Saint here because I know that she's trying to act like a duplicitous woman who's mm-hmm. hiding things. But to me, it just comes across really artificial. Like one of their best scenes together is where she's seducing him on the train. But even in this, when I listen to the way they talk, Cary Grant is just on another level. 
Such a nice face, too. Now, don't you think it'll be a better idea if you stayed in my hotel room while I located him for you, brought him to you? Can't let you get involved. Too dangerous. <laughs> I'm a big girl. Yeah, and in all the right places, too. Yeah, this is ridiculous. You know that, don't you? Yes. I mean, we've hardly met. That's right. How do I know you aren't a murderer? You don't. Maybe you're planning to murder me right here tonight. Shall I? Please do. I mean, I don't know how to describe it except that, like, if I'm picturing both performances as sound waves, mm-hmm. Cary Grant's sound waves go right into my brain. Right. And hers just sort of hit my forehead and fall down. I hear that. I think when I watch that scene, I'm looking into her eyes. I'm looking into her body language. And I am fully brought into that. I'm staring at her and I feel like I'm in the POV of Cary Grant and falling for her. I also, when you do watch a scene... Uh, fun thing to n- note. I'm sure they had a lot of discussions about how her hair could be touched, but he touches her hair in the most oddly organic. It's like, don't mess it up. So he just kind of cradles her hair. And no no fingers through it. Just like, I'm holding it like a net from behind. I've uh, never understood 50s hair that way. I mean, talk, if we can talk about men's suits, yeah. women's hair when they went to the beauty shop and got it set, yeah. I've never quite known what that was. And it, these people are still alive. I've just never, yeah. my grandmother goes and gets her hair set once a week. I don't get it. I don't understand how I you don't get, get your it hair either. done and then you don't I know less get about, your hair wet. Like, I, I don't know how this works. I know less about that than I do about men's suits. Um, <laughs> I think she's got to be cool. Like cool in... In temperature, not cool. Like, like she's got to be a little um, elusive is probably the term I should use uh, because she's got to keep on pulling him in. And I think that that's part of her reeling him in a little bit. Like, it's got to seem like his idea, but it's all her idea. I do sort of like her scene where they're in the um, forest that's just with all of the trees, that beautiful mm, shot. Beautiful. I mean, North by Northwest, I think, has some of the most beautiful cinematography. Just all the grays shot through with little bits of red that just that the shot of the two of them, the two cars on opposite ends of the screen, the trees right in front of them just standing stick straight like jail cell bars, them standing on equal frames away from each other. I mean, as they slowly talk and she tells him about how she fell in love with this guy and then she found out that she had to turn against him. I, I, there's something about this film that pops. All these scenes pop and they are, you know, uh, beautifully shot but the colors and we talk about the suit maybe it is the colors of this suit on screen that make it so appealing there may not be a gray like this really in real life but we love it so much and this is i think part of this vista vision format right which was just this um this higher resolution you know widescreen variant of like a 35 millimeter projection and when the first frame of the movie is this big green, it's like, bam, and it just hits you. That green is, uh, you know, so kind of intense right out of the gate. Um, yeah, it's almost like the green of Kim Novak's dress. You're just like, oh, I'm a green. Yeah. Oh, you love green. I think I wear more green now that we do this podcast. Really? Yeah. I think that you look good in green. Well, I, I'm, I'm realizing I love green thanks to Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s. 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. 
you'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. I want to ask you one quick question as we're talking about male and female relationships. You can speak probably more to this than I can because I think you understand Hitchcock's uh, oeuvre uh, more than I do. But it seems like a big trend in his films are men being betrayed by women. I feel like this look that she gives in this scene where they kiss and she just looks off camera, been done in a million movies since, but it is always a man falling for this woman. And it were at least, um, we can say that about Vertigo. We can also say that about Norman Bates. Not that he falls for his mother, but he will do anything for his mother. And I think his attraction to uh, Vera Miles uh, when she comes to the hotel, like he's in, you know, it's always these men kind of being betrayed by this woman. Is that a theme that you see as well? I mean, at least in the, what we've talked about on the show, I see Well, it. what's interesting is even in those three movies, even with Mrs. Bates and then with Kim Novak in here with Eva Marie Saint, yes, they are betraying these men or disrupting mm-hmm. them or hurting them in some way. But each one of those women was hurt by a man before this man. Right. You know, Miss Bates was screwed over by his dad. Right. You have poor Kim Novak, who's in love with a man who's making her dress and character mm-hmm. to, to trick this man. And then even here with Eva Marie Saint, she genuinely loved James Mason. And then she was forced to turn against him by the FBI slowly. So there's a sense of maybe like a little bit of Jessica Rabbit. Like, I'm not bad. You, I'm just drawn this way. Like, so you basically, made me this way. So basically... Hitchcock is focusing on men who are finding women who are finally getting their revenge against the men that betrayed them. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, but it is, it is, it is a strange kind of like trifecta, these three films in a row. mm -hmm. You know, I was trying to think about how North by Northwest really fits into these. And one of the interesting things is, you know, do you remember that Anthony um, Hopkins movie where he plays Hitchcock when Hitchcock is making Psycho? I actually was at um, KMB, which is a, um, a special effects company. It's uh, run by Greg Nicotero, who does all the Walking Dead. And uh, I was getting fitted for something on Black Monday, and they had a life-size Anthony Hopkins as Hitchcock. It was amazing. It frightened me because he's standing in a corner, and it's so dead-on perfect. But I guess they did uh, his his face for that <laughs> film, and it's. It was one of, I should have taken a picture with it. I felt nervous <laughs> to take pictures because I was walking around. I'm, I'm sure in places where I needed to sign like NDAs, uh, I saw a lot of cool stuff. But one of the <laughs> coolest things was just Hitchcock in the corner, but Anthony Hopkins Hitchcock. <laughs> but that movie kind of puts forth this idea that I think really seems true from everything I've read about Hitchcock in this moment, that North by Northwest let him do everything he ever wanted to do. He got mm-hmm. the biggest star, which is Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. He got a huge budget. He got to go dramatically over budget. The, the main I mean, things he ever wanted to do in his life was he wanted to shoot something on Mount Rushmore. And he also wanted to shoot this scene with like the crop duster. Yeah. And he got all of these scenes he's always wanted to shoot and he did it. And then it was sort of like, well, now what? You know, like I did it. It's like, well, for Hitchcock wept for there were no more lands left to conquer. But it's, it, you know, it seems like he's a miserable man. I don't say that lightly. I just think he's a perfectionist. And, you know, it, it's sort of like, well, I, I accomplish everything I want. Huh. That sucks. You know, like he needs another mountain to climb. And I think as he got to the end of his career, he became kind of more and more embarrassed that he wasn't 
uh, at the level of someone like Steven Spielberg, I, there was a whole issue. He wouldn't even meet Spielberg uh, because Spielberg's such a big fan. And he was kind of after Jaws. Like there's just a lot of, I think a lot of him being in his head, you know. But I think this is the movie that made him blow up the mountain. Right. You know, that he was like, well, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do it this big. I want to go back and do something black and white and disreputable like Psycho. I think like this movie turned him into making the schlock movies of the 60s that people really liked just as much. I mean, this is not a verbatim Hitchcock quote, but this is how Anthony Hopkins plays the scene in Hitchcock. Do you remember the fun we had when we started out all those years ago? We didn't have any money then, did we? We didn't have any time either, but we took risks. Do you remember? We experimented. We invented new ways of making pictures. Because we had to. I just want to feel that kind of freedom again. You know, I think we all feel that way in a creative way, right? When no one's looking, you do your, not your best work, but I think you do your most free work. And I think it's always a challenge to get back there. How do you continue to keep that? I mean, I, I started off my career doing these shows in a black box theater at UCB and no one saw them. I literally did a show for one person. It was like me and Rob Riggle and, uh, and, and Rob Hubel and a handful of other people. And, and we, we just were doing shows for no one. And there's a freedom for that. Like now to think about doing a show for one person, I would be mortified. Then I was like, it's a challenge. How long can we keep this person in the theater for? Like, you know, before they left, you know, and like, maybe we should do an unspooled for one person. Can we do an unspooled <laughs> life for one that person? That would be a very expensive. Yeah. I, let's do it. Let's bring them in. <laughs> uh, but no, I think, I mean, don't you feel that way? Like when you first started writing, like there's a freedom in that no one essentially cared. I was definitely meaner. Like I went back really? and I read the very first published review I ever had in my what college paper. Well, it, it was about a Nicolas Cage movie. And I said he looked like a boiled pork chop. And I would never say wow. that about an actor now. I would never just go after somebody's looks and make fun of them. But I remember, you know, being like, no one's going to read this. I'm at a college paper in Oklahoma. Wow. And I was like trying to get my stripes by being mean. And it, it, it embarrasses me now. I'm like, I would never, ever, ever, ever be that personal. Amy, I need to do a mini episode with you of this podcast where you read my first review <laughs> uh, from the NYU paper of a TV show that starred Dave Chappelle and you let me read your review. We'll read them both on air. Mine is terrible. Okay. Okay. I like this. We'll do it. I have mine. I found it. I found it and I preserved it. I, I did too. And I'm in, incredibly embarrassed by mine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we're talking about the budget was $3 million. It makes $55 million. Huge hit. The movie is so not even expensive, but it could afford these possibilities. Like every day the movie went over, they paid Cary Grant $5,000 a day. And he did that for nine weeks. I mean, it makes sense that after this, you didn't see Hitchcock work with anybody Cary Grant's caliber again. That he was right. like, I want to work with cheaper people. I want to build careers. I want to do kind of like the rough and tumble stuff of like building people up. And I'm done with giant movie stars and their giant salaries. I want to be spending that money on, you know, fake blood. Right. No. And I mean... I think it's a rare thing to see someone go backwards. I think you could point to M. Night as one of those people who, you know, had this big explosion. And instead of going from his greatest success to doing something smaller, you know, he, I think, found a lot of success in this Blumhouse model. I think a lot of people 
do that, you know, kind of, I think a lot of people start their career there, but very rarely go back yeah. to it. You're right. I think you see actors do that, or at mm-hmm. least maybe just because of the way acting has gone in the last 20, 30 years, that a lot of the actors of the nineties, when they were making $25 million as a picture, mm-hmm. you know, now you can barely get a movie made for 25 million. Come like, do an indie and get down and dirty in the muck. Exactly. Now, if you had $25 million, Blumhouse would make five movies and not just give that to Demi Moore. Oh yeah. yeah five so like, movies. They, they, if you're 25, <laughs> they have 25 movies. I mean, literally, those yeah. movies are like a million bucks each. Exactly. And yeah. so you see, like, actors kind of go through this arc. Like, Demi Moore is in crappy horror movies now. I mean, before she was like, I don't get out of bed for less than $25 million. Yeah, well. But directors going backwards, yeah, that's a lot more rare. Well, I mean, I think it's going to be a lot more I remember, necessary, and I hope I'm not but, speaking out of school, but I remember sitting down with Michael Bay and him talking to me about being so fed up with the process of Transformers and how... It's such a big budget, and he really wanted to get back to his roots and make something much more personal. And what he was describing uh, eventually became Pain and Gain. Like, to him, Pain and Gain was his indie. And that may have been a movie that had a $60 million budget. But to a person who's making $230 million movies, that's a significant pay cut. It's still, though, I think, to the modern audience, (laughs) look like a big budget movie. But, uh, (laughs) but, But I think there is that thing of... Not having to answer to people, too. Like, I think now if you're making a movie for that much money, it's got to be this term for quadrant, right? It's got to be good for young and old, men and women. And to appease all those groups, you get noted to death. And very rarely do you get a vision that's so unique. And I think bigger budgets become trickier beasts because you stop getting to do the things that you want. I mean, not that this is something that he couldn't do, but in this movie... Hitchcock, you know, didn't want to do the crop duster scene. He wanted to do a tornado. He <laughs> wanted the, the bad guys to send a tornado. People had to be like, well, wait, hold on. How, how would they send a tornado? <laughs> like he just had that visual idea. And, you know, the crop duster kind of came out of it. I think Putin could do that. I mean, he's like really into seeding clouds. I remember once when I was in Russia, there was like this big um, celebration for an mm-hmm. anniversary of St. Petersburg. Yeah. And Putin was like, I don't want it to rain on my laser light show. There's a laser light show okay, that night, yeah. which is why the only Russian phrase I know is like, let's go to the laser light show. I love this. And uh, he seeded the clouds because he was like really freaked out. It would rain and ruin his laser light show. And so we were in this boat and, you know, St. Petersburg is all boats. So we're like in this boat in a canal waiting for the laser light show. And it just started pouring because he mistimed it. And in a millisecond, Whoa. it went from like clear sky to thunderstorm and they had to cancel the laser light show and they had to do it the next day because he seeded the clouds too well. Wow. Anyway, so yes, it is possible to screw with weather, I Um, think. I don't know about tornadoes, but I heard you could nuke a a tornado. Well, I mean, look, I mean, I've seen Geostorm. I know it's possible and (laughs) and I guess so did our president. Um, Amy, this movie came about in an interesting way, right? Because Hitchcock was supposedly working on this uh, adaptation of a novel called The Wreck of the Married Deer, right? Which was an interesting story. They basically find, it's a true story. They found a boat at sea. All the lifeboats were preserved. The um, There was like the, the heat on the stove was still kind of hot, uh, but there are no people on this boat. Like, it's what like happened? Roanoke the boat. Exactly. Just disappeared. And so Hitchcock was like working on this this idea and he couldn't really figure it out because he thought like, oh, you know, going backwards to figure out like what happened seems laborious. It's like the opening scene is great, but it just seems like explanation, explanation. So he kind of went back to this idea that was originally sent to him just like in the mail. This gentleman, Otis C. Guernsey, he was an American journalist. 
It was actually inspired by a true story that during World War II, when British intelligence obtained a dead body, they invented a fictitious officer who was carrying secret papers and arranged for the body and misleading papers to be discovered by the Germans as a disinformation scheme called Operation Mincemeat. He turned that idea into a story about an American salesman who travels to the Middle East and is mistaken for a fictitious agent, becoming saddled with a romantic and dangerous identity. Um, and basically... There was not much there. Even the, you know, Otis C. Guernsey was like, it was kind of full of corn. It lacked logic. But he said, you know, take this idea, Hitchcock. Go uh, go do anything you want with it. Here's 60 pages. They paid $10,000 for it. And then uh, all of a sudden, this is when Ernest Lehman comes in. And he's like, I want to now take this idea and write, the, you know, the Hitchcock picture to end all Hitchcock pictures. Which and- in a way it kind of did. I it guess ended, you're it right. It ended this part of Hitchcock. It yeah. ended this period of Hitchcock. In a way... I think it's a it's a, a fitting swan song because it is like we said it's the top of this mountain the it's the top of Mount Rushmore if you will yeah I mean the way that like Ernest described it is that Hitch told him that they're not making a movie you know, Hitch was like Hitchcock was like we are not making a movie we are constructing an organ and what you're going to do with this organ is you press this chord and now the audience laughs and then you press that chord and they gasp and you press these notes and you chuckle and he said someday we won't even have to make the movie we'll just attach people to electrodes and we'll play the emotions for them to experience <laughs> wow the that's a really great way to uh, experience art I mean but it feels like it because this movie is sort of like toggling from like laughter to thrills to scares mm. to blah to blah and it's I mean so much of it is just done with this awesome music well yeah and I would also argue that Hitchcock writes in a way that reminded me of Chris McQuarrie on this last Mission Impossible film. And I referenced this big, giant podcast on the Empire Magazine podcast where he talks about six hours about the making of the movie. And he kind of built the film around set pieces. He would visit a location and then build towards it. And Hitchcock kind of did the same thing. He's like, I want to do this and this and this. One of the coolest ones was... Uh, he had this idea for where Roger Thornhill would be at the Ford factory and be talking to a factory worker and they would be discussing a specific foreman at the plant and they'd walk alongside an assembly line as a car was being put together. And when the car was finished, Thornhill would open the passenger door and the body of the foreman would just tumble out. And they're like, this is great. This is a great scene. We got to do this. And they had that up on the board. Not Rushmore's up on the board. They couldn't make that scene, which I love. But then I saw later on, it was Crib for Minority Report. It was, yeah. There's that whole scene in in a car factory where you have Colin Farrell, my favorite underappreciated actor, Mm -hmm. running alongside watching this car get made while he knows that Tom Cruise might be inside of it. Uh, Nobody dies, I think. Tom Cruise lives, alas. I do love that, you know, probably that lost Hitchcock seed of an idea was in there when this person was writing their script. Like, well, he didn't do it. He's not going to do it anytime any soon. So let's get in here. I mean, from what I've heard, I think the James Bond franchise, when it started, they wanted Cary Grant to be the first James Bond. I mean, really? He's, he's British, which I feel like I always forget because he's always doing this accent. Right, right. Um, that's interesting. I wonder if James Bond would have been successful with Cary Grant because I think what he brings to it is a little bit more of a, a sly energy where I think Sean Connery played a bit more of the brute, which I think works better for the character. It feels like the difference between Sean Connery and Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan kind of played the the more, uh, you know, suave, debonair kind of, you know. What do you think? The problem that Hitchcock would have with Cary Grant, I think, would be the same problem with James Bond, which is, you know, Hitchcock comes to America in the late 30s. Mm-hmm. By the way, did you know that one of the first movies Hitchcock was supposed to do when he came to America in the 30s was Titanic? 
Really? Yeah. He was supposed to do a Titanic, and his dream scene that he wanted to do for the Alfred Hitchcock Titanic of the 1930s was a scene where a baker was icing a cake, and he was writing happy birthday on it. And Hitchcock was like, the audience will know the irony that this birthday will never come to pass, and this cake (laughs) will never be eaten. And he was playing with Titanic with the idea of suspense, that you all know what's going to happen. Right. So how do you lead into it? Exactly. But... Then when Hitchcock really does come to America and start making movies here, Cary Grant is the first big, big official movie star he works with because one of Hitchcock's ideas when he was transitioning from England to America was, how do I revolutionize the star system? You know, here you have this thing where all of these actors are locked into personas. And how can I come in and be Hitchcock on Cary Grant? You know, Cary Grant, the man who's in Philadelphia story. How can I make him cool again? And so he tried to cast him as... Maybe murderers. You know, one of the first mm-hmm. movies that he put him in was this movie called Suspicion, where he's supposed to be a playboy Cary Grant type, where where Hitchcock's goal is like to use the attraction that Cary Grant has on people right. against the audience, where the audience would be like, look at this handsome ne'er-do-well, fall in love with him, and then he would wind up being a man who's willing to poison his wife. But because people loved Cary Grant so much, he couldn't pull it off. Audiences were like, we're not going down there. The studio was like, you can't make him a murderer. So they had to pull it back a little bit, make him Got a it. lightweight, maybe murderer. And ultimately, he was not able to make Cary Grant that much of a bad guy. Like, he keeps trying in all these films. He's right. not a great guy. But he's never really an evil killer. And I think James Bond could would have, they really would have hit him on the same thing. Like, how could you make Cary Grant murder? Yeah, but I think Cary Grant with a gun in James Bond fashion, especially especially in the Dr. No era, you could put a gun in his hand, no problem. Like, it's not like he's- But would he pull the trigger? Yes, absolutely. Like, I don't think of him- He's got a love gun, Paul. No, no, no. I I see him as uh, a suave, debonair kind of spy, but I think Sean Connery brings a little bit more of a brute to it. And I think, you know, we always are wrestling with that in James Bond. Like, Some is a little bit more jokey. Some are a little bit too flat. Some, you know, it's a real weird mix. I always go back. I love George Lazenby. I think he kind of threads this needle in a very interesting way. Uh, And I think Daniel Craig right now is doing a great job um, when the material kind of rises to meet his performance. I think it would have set the James Bond franchise off in a different direction that probably would have gotten to be almost too jokey. It may have just burnt itself out. I mean, I feel like a Cary Grant James Bond would function almost sort of like Eva Marie Saint's Eve Kendall. You know, he he would exist in a movie maybe just to be the cover for the real shooter. Mm. He would flirt and he would maybe have a gun with blinks in it and he would woo you. So and more then like, somebody else would have to come and do the actual killing. So it's more like the Woody Allen Casino Royale where everyone is pretending to be James Bond. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> I mean, I think like Cary Grant... His maybe most iconic shot of his entire career Mm -hmm. is in this movie. Him running with the plane behind him. Yes. I mean, Hitchcock gave him that, which I think is really cool because from everything I've read about Cary Grant, you know, he retired, of course, when he was when his daughter Jennifer was born after this, but he actually wanted to retire before this. He was nearly about to retire because after Philadelphia Story and after like his few early Hitchcock movies, he thought he was just being given kind of crap romantic charming roles that Mm -hmm. he thought were really boring. So he was about to retire when Hitchcock was like, come back and do to catch a thief. And that rejuvenated him again, at least for a little bit. But I don't know. I think when I watch a Hitchcock and Cary Grant movie, I feel sort of aware of how much Hitchcock wishes he was Cary Grant. You know, like Hitchcock was a man who, he owned thousands and thousands and thousands of suits, really expensive ones. And they're all black, but they're all slightly different. Actually, they were dark, 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 dark blue, Mm -hmm. but they looked almost black. 
And he once said, Hitchcock, I thought this was kind of tragic, that if he was skinnier and taller, he thinks he would have won an Oscar. But they didn't want to give it to him because they thought he was too short and fat. And that something in it worked against him, the way that they used to always say you can't have a fat president. Interesting. Well, Howard Taft, take that. You know, Amy, we spent a lot of time so far talking about the style and our leads, but there are two people we haven't really spoken about, and I would argue maybe even our other romantic leads, which is uh, James Mason and Martin Landau. We talked about Martin Landau's suit, um, but I love this relationship here, and it's a really interesting duo in this film. They are essentially the bad guys. Um, I like how you put that in quotes, like they're not, quote, murdering people. Well, <laughs> you look, I think... <laughs> Well, I don't know in what way James Mason is bad. I mean, he's just bringing microfilm from one place to the next, you know? Yeah, microfilm that I like never really factors into the plot. It's like, yeah, 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 it fell, it broke. Okay, anyways. Uh, He said that like what he wanted to do with the Mason character was that he wanted to make an evil guy who was split into three parts so that he wasn't Mm. too evil. So that you had James Mason himself, who just had to like nod and be graceful and be sort of confident and in control. And then he had evil, 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 evil looking Martin Landau, who was more like the creep. Who oh, gave like wow. you the atmosphere of actual malevolence, and then you had the guy who plays Valerian of the I love it. Man Is of a Thousand the, Guns. Yes, <laughs> yeah, the Valerian guy who actually did the violence. But so instead of having one all-consuming bad guy, oh, wow. you divide it up. Well, it's interesting because I read this little piece about Martin Landau, which was that he chose to play his character as gay and in love with James Mason's character, and kind of tying everything back to where we've been. Um, Hitchcock had seen Martin Landau in a Patty Chayefsky uh, Broadway play where he played a very macho guy. And so I think in a way, Landau wanted to explore what else he could do. And so he thought if he was gay, he could justify wanting to get rid of even Marie Saint's character with a vengeance. Like that's, he wanted basically um, James Mason to be with him, you know? And this story, I guess, got out and it it's often asked or was asked of James Mason if his character was bisexual. And he was just like, no, he wasn't bisexual, but Martin Landau made a choice and now there's nothing I can do about it. Um, you know, and, and, and obviously uh, Hitchcock supported this decision as did the screenwriter. And I think it makes for an interesting dynamic. It, it, it's not like outwardly there, but it 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 gives a little bit more energy to these two people and and when they're interacting on screen together. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it feels like from these movies that are pre-code, it's like you'd have to throw a rock to not hit a performance that feels like it's slightly coded, right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, yeah, it seems like it, we just keep coming up against it and people at least reading it that way, interpreting it that way. I mean, even Marie Saint had to read double line in the movie. It was, uh, I never make love on an empty stomach to I never discuss love on an empty stomach because the censors thought it was too risque. <laughs> I love that you could actually watch that and see her lips completely say something else. I know. But didn't you think- Oh, a- by the way, what a gross idea. I never make love on an empty stomach. Ew. Like, so you want to- Slosh like, around. I mean, she's eating trout. That's very trouty. It's like that It's like that uh, Hulk Hogan sex tape video where it's like, ugh. Had some sushi. I was like, oh God! I don't like. Don't talk to me about what you've eaten as we're having sex. Ugh! I never make love without five pounds of trout. <laughs> but, by the way, they did keep that closing shot of the train going through the tunnel, which I thought was very uh, suggestive. What's it suggestive of? 
<laughs> Trains. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I love I love James Mason and Martin Landau together. Don't you think Martin Landau looks like, do you remember our guest from very early on in the show when we did The Sixth Sense and we had seance master Rob oh, Zabrecki? yes, of they course. They look exactly alike. I uh, think Rob Zabrecki is like the second coming of Martin Landau. A young Martin Landau. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I pulled a clip of just, I just love the dialogue in this movie. And we've heard a lot of Cary Grant's dialogue, but this is a fun little scene between James Mason and Martin Landau. You must have had some doubts about it yourself. And still do. Rubbish. Why else would you have decided not to tell her that our little treasure here has a belly full of microfilm? You seem to be trying to fill mine with rotten apples. Sometimes the truth does taste like a mouthful of worms. Truth? I've heard nothing but innuendo. Call it my woman's intuition, if you will. But I've never trusted neatness. Neatness is always the result of deliberate planning. She shot him in a moment of fear and anger. You were there yourself, you saw it. Yes. And thereby wrapped everything up into one very neat and tidy bundle. Hey, she removed any doubts you may have had about her, uh, what did you call it, her devotion? And B, she gave herself a new and urgent reason to be taken over to the other side with you, just in case you decided to change your mind. You know what I think? Uh, <laughs> I think you're jealous. No, I mean it. I'm very touched. Really? Leonard? Oh, there's so many things I love about that scene. One, that we're um, seeing it so much to the point of view of Cary Grant, who's mm-hmm. outside the window, so we can see the gun that Martin Landau's hiding behind yes. his back that James Mason can't see. And we're so confused. Like, why does he have a gun? And what is his mission here? And what does he possibly want? I love that element of suspense from it. And also, just man, like Martin Landau is so smooth and evil. James Mason. Yeah, and speaking of that smoothness, what I like about this scene is I feel like they're both playing into what I just talked about—the idea that they are not in a relationship, but it it seems like a couple's fight. They're they're kind of at each other. I just love the turns of phrase that they use. Um, but I I love the pacing of that mixed with the visuals that you're talking about. It it really is the tension of watching a fight that's very controlled with this added element of a gun, which is, you know, something that Hitchcock has done since Rope, which, you know, is years before, right? Um, and I, I love that idea. If you see a gun in the first act, you got to use it. In the third, here, we're seeing the gun, and he does use it, you know, which is a, a, a thing. And I feel like this movie plays with that idea of what we see versus what the characters see, but sparingly, like it uses it a little bit. I, so much so that in the beginning of the film, I was like, oh, this doesn't really feel like a Hitchcock film. This just feels like a regular film. And then once it gets to the UN, it takes some big camera shifts and some big moments. Where, oh, okay. Now I start to see the Hitchcock of this. Yeah, all. that giant almost painted looking shot of him walking across what looks like a chessboard. Yeah. You know, and, this, uh, and that shot of him looking at the face of the UN man who's like screaming and then you see it's because he's got a knife. I mean, there's a couple of the camera angles in here that are just super POV. You know, oh, yeah. you're getting punched in the face, which Hitchcock did not invent. They were doing that earlier. But movies. the camera goes up above them at one, you know, like just like there's a lot of, but it, it seems restrained in the beginning. But wait, did you catch what I think is a joke about Martin Landau in this film and also Eva Marie Saint, and it ties into our, our no. movie last week. What is it? This is from the moment where they're at the auction and Cary Grant bursts in the auction. He confronts Eva Marie Saint and he confronts James Mason. Sold then to Mr. Van Damme at 700. Number 106 for your pleasure is the... Oh, Mr. Van Damme. 
Has anyone ever told you that you overplay your various roles rather severely, Mr. Kaplan? First, you're the outraged Madison Avenue man who claims he's been mistaken for someone else. Then you play the fugitive from justice, supposedly trying to clear his name of a crime he knows he didn't commit. Now you play the peevish lover, stung by jealousy and betrayal. Seems to me you fellows could stand a little less training from the FBI and a little more from the actor's studio. Apparently, the only performance that will satisfy you is when I play dead. In your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. <laughs> mm. I mean, a couple of things. Playing dead literally is his next role. He fakes getting shot. Oh, wow. I love that. But also, the actor's studio, you know, the Elia Kazan yeah. company, what happens in real life is the year after On the Waterfront comes out, Martin Landau auditions for the actor's studio as this young actor. He auditions, 500 people audition, and only he and Steve McQueen get in. Wow. And so Martin Landau was also this actor's studio-trained guy who studied under Kazan and then took these teachings, and he went on to be, like, the mentor for Jack Nicholson. He mentored Angelica Houston. I mean, Martin Landau was actually best friends with James Dean before this movie. Really? Yeah, and I didn't really, because I think of him... You yeah, know, older. I don't really think of like this Martin Lane. I forget he was young because he's always been old in my life. Right. No, that's how I think about him too. When I saw him, he's unmistakable for being Martin Lando, but I haven't seen him like this. Yeah. But I love that there's this through line where this movie that feels so old fashioned in a lot of ways and, and kind of the dignified culture mm-hmm. that it presents is also aware of what's happening around it in the 50s by casting these actors, by bringing yeah. over Eva Saint, by Hitchcock telling her, I don't want you to do any more movies where you're washing dishes at the sink. You know, speaking of all these kind of similarities, there's another Ilya Kazan on the waterfront similarity here, which I kind of perked up at, which is a reveal over loud sounds, right? <gasps> I thought I was thinking about that too. Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, the difference is we kind of get the gist of what we don't hear the full plan versus on the waterfront. We know what he's telling her. But I, I love that convention was used in both films very differently. But um but again, that same convention. Exactly, exactly. Now, do you mind if I acknowledge that I have kind of a crush on James Mason in this this film? Oh, how could you not? I know. I think between him and Christopher Walken, I think I really am into men with big cheekbones. <laughs> I think there's just something about a man with big cheekbones. I'm like, yes. James you. Mason plays, again, I feel like everyone's kind of in the pocket on this movie. Like, there is something affluent about him. It's the way that we picture a bad guy, an international bad guy. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a charming thing. You also see how she could fall in love with this guy. Yeah, I feel like she does actually love James Mason. You know that she, I mean, who wouldn't fall for James Mason? She seems to really mean it when she says that she met him. She just fell for this guy. And actually, Hitchcock, I believe, also had his own crush on James Mason. That goes all the way back to Rope. Really? He gets name-checked. Do you remember that? No, I Here don't. Here it is. This is during the dinner party conversation. I didn't like the new girl much. Definitely Scorpio. No, I didn't like her either, but her clothes were fabulous. Simply divine. Absolute heaven. I must see it. Of course, the man I have a passion for is James Mason. Is he good? Absolutely terrific. So attractively sinister. Tony's the bull, you know. Very obstinate. Really? But I have a confession to make. Do you know I think I like Mason as much as Errol Flynn? I'll take Cary Grant myself. Oh, so will I. Capricorn, the goatee leaps to find. I love that. I didn't even remember that scene. Yeah, 11 years before he puts Cary Grant and James Mason in a film together, he's having two women argue about who's more attractive. Well, you know, speaking of James Mason and his appeal, 
Let's just talk really quickly. Do you think this is why he works so well in Lolita? I mean, here's a guy who was born in uh, 1909. Eva Marie Saint, uh, born in 1924. That's a pretty big age difference between these two characters. Uh, for Leonardo DiCaprio, she's too old. <laughs> she actually is. She's over 30 in this movie. He wouldn't. He would never. But there's something about him that I feel like... Um, you know, like he's appealing to the young and the old and that even in that scene yeah. that we just saw from Rope. And he had, I guess, just been in A Star is Born not that long before mm-hmm. this, where I, I feel like I'll get yelled at for this. But the Judy Garland A Star is Born is not my favorite Star is Born, but he is really lovely in it. I, well, I mean, he's just so magnetic. Like what I really like about him is maybe it is because he was born you know, that early that he grew up to be the guy who really was a huge silent film guy, even still. Like, mm-hmm. he would narrate documentaries on Chaplin. He bought Buster Keaton's old house this same decade. Oh, wow. He bought his old house, and he found old Buster Keaton mo- movies in the house, which is amazing. And he, like, paid to get them restored. Wow. I love that about him. And I love that James Mason, this is very near and dear to my heart, he was a big cat guy. He owned nine cats. <laughs> wow. Nine cats. He actually wrote two books about his cats. What were they called? Um, one of them was called The Cats in Our Lives, and I think the other one was like Letters from My Cat or something, which this is very much in my alley. He would draw the, the pencil sketches of his cats. They're mm-hmm. very good. But also, you know, this scene that we were playing with them in the auction house, what I love about it is how it ties into the Cary Grant suitness of it all. Mm-hmm. That Cary Grant is a man in a suit that should let him walk into any room, honestly. Yes. That suit lets him go to the plaza. That suit lets him go to court. That suit makes him look like a man who can blend in. There's a lot of I mean, I'm, I feel weird with using the word white privilege completely in this way, but like Cary Grant in this movie is a man who's privileged enough to look the part to go anywhere. Yes. And in this in this scene, he's wearing the suit in a part where he knows he fits in and he has to choose not to fit in. He has to choose to disrupt the auction. And watching him do that, even though he looks so perfect, that I think adds to the tension of it. He's not a guy who's showing up in, you know, what would be like the greaser outfit of 1959. You know, he's making a choice to not fit in for the first time in this film. Oh, I love that. I love that idea. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Amy, we can't not speak of probably one of the most famous scenes in film history, which is, of course, the crop duster scene. We've talked about it a little bit. Um, this is uh, We talked about James Bond in the beginning. This is a scene that inspires uh, the helicopter scene in uh, from Russia with Love. This is just an iconic scene of cinema. If you've not seen this movie, you've definitely seen Cary Grant being mowed down by this crop duster. And I actually was thinking about this and wanted to get your take on it. Like, uh did Cary Grant do the original Tom Cruise run? I mean, that like that's <laughs> such a, I was watching that. And I was like, oh, this is so, you know, his run is different than Tom Cruise, but equally, you know, Tom Cruise has the best run on film, but I, I feel like he, uh, Cary Grant's got a very uh, bizarre thing going on there too. I forget who said my favorite thing about Tom Cruise's run. It was either David Demby or Anthony Lane, but they said he runs as though he's balancing an invisible egg on a spoon. Oh, interesting. 
I think that's the greatest line ever. I mean, we should just play that scene just so you can get a sense of what I find really striking about it. Not just the visuals, but the way that Hitchcock uses silence. That in the buildup to this plane dive bombing him, there has been nothing but eerie, mm. eerie quiet. You're, he's there. You hear the faint sound of the airplane. You don't know that it's going to be menacing. You have that wonderful surreal shot of the man like coming off of a car and standing across from James May, or yeah. uh, sitting across from Cary Grant on the street, and just the stillness of it. Like I find the confident way in which Hitchcock lets this this iconic scene be quiet and doesn't have to juice it up with a bunch of crazy violins and doesn't have to make it extra extra thrilling that he lets it build like that i didn't even think about it like that you're right the scene is it is just the sounds and the machine gun sounds and it's such a simple yet ominous thing to make such a ridiculous way of being killed seem so scary it's like when are we ever going to be mowed down by a crop duster and and it just keeps on coming at him. You add in the machine gun fire. Then you add in the actual crop dusting. And his suit gets very clean very quickly. Uh, but it um, it makes this very bizarre, innocuous object become a really scary weapon. Yeah, and I think that's really what drew Hitchcock to this idea is, yeah, it's really easy for him to put a man in a shadow and make that man look scary. Or have a yeah. man walking around in a dark, creepy sidewalk. And, oh, somebody could jump out at him. But a businessman in a business suit in the middle of nothing with bright sunshine, how can you freak people out with that? Yeah. And I think he was so content with his gifts maybe or or overfull or bored with his gifts that he had to set this up for himself as a challenge. You know, Hitchcock, apparently one of the things he wanted to shoot for this was he wanted to do a POV from being inside the plane mm-hmm. and watching the person like fly down and oh, shoot wow. and kill. And I think it was probably supposed to be a Valerian maybe. Valerian could suddenly fly a plane. Yeah, okay. But then they didn't have enough money for it, so he didn't do it. Although later in life, Hitchcock said something that he's just said, I don't even know who was in the plane. And honestly, I don't really care. Like, what was what was important to me was that the audience went through the emotion of that plane scene. Yeah, you never want to be in that plane. I think it's I, – I, I don't even think of the plane as having uh, a pilot in a way. It just seems like it, it's just this scary instrument. That's what I really respect about what he's trying to do. That even North by Northwest, a movie that I think looks a lot more literal on the surface, Hitchcock is like, it's a fantasy. He's, he was like, North by Northwest isn't even a direction. You know, that's me right. telling you that this doesn't matter. Well, None that, of this matters. Cary Grant was like, I don't understand what this movie's about. And he's like, doesn't matter. Well, because they, you know, the whole North by Northwest was like, not even a code name, but just the way they would discuss the film, like that, the you know, it's, <laughs> they knew they had to get to Mount Rushmore and they knew they were starting in uh, New York. And they're like, oh, well, we're going in a Northwesterly direction. And they kept on joking like, well, yeah, North, you know, We're going northwest and north by northwest. And it got to the point when the film was released or getting to be released. They're like, well, we have so much buzz on this movie already in the in the in the trade papers that we'll lose it if we change the name. Like, yeah, who cares? Like, we know it's not a real direction. And it is. It's a it's a name that, again, if you think about it, it makes no sense. But. When you hear it, it, it connotes something different. It, it, I don't know. Yeah. It, yeah. And every most of the motion you see on screen seems to be going south or southwest. I kept writing mm. south by southwest all over. Well, isn't Cary Grant always in the left-hand side of the screen, too? <laughs> so I don't know. I, I also like the other fake name they had, which is Man in Lincoln's Nose. Well, yeah. Well, so originally, from what I understood, uh, they, I mean, I think they wanted 
Cary Grant to be like hanging out of Lincoln's nose and then have and then have a sneezing fit, uh, something like crazy like that. He wanted him to slide down Lincoln's nose, have a sneezing fit in the nostril. Hence the name, the man in the glint's nose. But the Department of the Interior would not allow it. So the chasing had to be in between the heads. They thought that was like maybe, uh, you know, sacrilege. uh, I mean, in a way, I think that's what makes this film to me at all psychologically interesting. Because I I have to be I have to be honest. I'm not that interested in what's going on in Cary Grant's head Mm -hmm. in this film. I'm just like watching him keep up well there's but, not there isn't much it's like he's just been wrongly accused and at every turn you the only emotion you need to know is that he's not guilty of this and but yet everything points to him being guilty of it but yet what there is is there's this idea of what is american stability right like yeah. these are our presidents literally carved in stone for all time and it's not a safe place to be right the united nations the thing that's supposed to keep the world safe in the 50s and you can get murdered in there And I like how in this movie he's chipping away at the things that we're taking reassurance of in America in the 50s at the height of the Cold War. And he is making us even be equal, equally complicit in the bad guys. Like like here in this scene where Cary Grant gets mad at the men for sending Eva Marie Saint back off to be with James Mason. She's going off with Van Damme tonight on the plane. She's going off with Van Damme. Well, that's why we went to such lengths to make her a fugitive from justice. So that Van Damme couldn't very well decline to take her along. But you said... I needn't tell you how valuable she can be to us over there. You lied to me. You said that after tonight... I needed your help. Well, you got it all right. Don't be angry. Do you think I'm going to let you go through with this dirty business? She has to. Nobody has to do anything. I don't like the games you play, Professor. War is hell, Mr. Thornhill. Even when it's a cold one. If you fellas can't lick the Van Dams of this world without asking girls like her to bed down with them and fly away with them and probably never come back... Perhaps you ought to start learning how to lose a few cold wars. I'm afraid we're already doing that. You know, it's so funny. I didn't even grasp any of that the first time that I'm watching it because I don't think I care about the plot. <laughs> like, you know, and I don't think that that's a bad thing. It's a sort of like, I get it. I get what's happening, you know, and it's, uh, but yeah, there's like little seeds of all this throughout. It's true. And I think what I didn't grasp when I first saw this movie, you know, what I have really loved about doing this podcast with you is, you know, I think of all these movies from the past as being mm-hmm. random dots on a timeline, you know, disconnected, almost like a mobile. Yeah. It's, I'm loving putting them together, lacing them all yeah. together and really thinking about, especially in the last two weeks, how Hitchcock's movies are getting increasingly surreal and fantastical and less reliant on logic at the same time that there's this rise of hyper real films, you know, right. Marlon Brando being like, I'm going to be super real. I'm going to m- mumble over my words. And that Hitchcock's almost competing with them. You know, also in that scene that we just played at the Cold War, I want to give a little shout out to Leo Carroll, who mm-hmm. was the man in, in that scene. Leo G. Carroll, he was in a bunch of Hitchcock's. Like he's one of Hitchcock's favorite people. I think they did six movies together. Oh, wow. Going all the way back to Cary Grant's first one with him, uh, to Suspicion. And, you know, I have, I have to say, I love him. I love this idea of the American villainy being so bland. Yeah. You know, just showing up and sort of being calm. And in that character, it got me thinking, and here's where I, I don't want you to get too mad at me, that I would be happy if North by Northwest was not on the AFI list. Interesting. Because that type of character, and I think this type of film is something that I think the Coen brothers do just as good, if not better. Mm. And I would lose North by Northwest on the fil- on the list for a Coen brothers film. For an all-American satire of a hapless man forced into a situation he wasn't expecting. Something the Coens are always all about. I want to see them here. 
I feel like we could lose this one. I feel also just uncomfortable that we have like three films in a row from the same person. Yeah. Like, you know, they're no. all very different, but we could we could pop this guy up. I there's so many stories like this. And for variety's sake, I think it is worthy. As much as I love this movie, is it the one or the ultimate one that should be on this list? And I, and I think there's something about Vertigo and Psycho that are solely unique as films that we, I don't know, that capture something. Whereas this is just a great, great movie. Super fun, great movie. It's the way I feel about bringing up baby. Loved it. Great. Super funny. Like, great. But, you know, we were in this zone of like, if we have, we have to sometimes take off the ones that we love, not just the ones that, you know, we're like, ugh, that one. Yeah. You know, um, I, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not disagreeing with you at, at all. I, um, it's tough because it's so iconic. And yeah. I would argue that this movie is more iconic than Vertigo. I think Vertigo is a better made film than this because it's deeper and it's weirder and it's a little bit more intense. But this I is think a more it's chewier. Yes. Think, yeah. This is a more enjoyable film than Vertigo. Like I would watch this over Vertigo. It's crunchier. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't so know if that makes any Chewier versus anybody crunchier. but me. But yes. No, but I know I, I hear what you're saying. It, it, like, so there is, you know, we're wrestling with these things that are part of our iconic American backdrop. But at, at the same time, you know, we gotta, if we can't make a bigger quilt, we gotta swap out some panels every now and then. Uh, yeah, and, this and, is a panel I think we could let go. We've got some good Cary Grants on if here. If you're telling me that we're gonna put a Coen Brothers movie on here in place of this, I'm not mad at it. I can't argue that. I can't say that the Coens don't belong on here and, and Hitchcock belongs on here three times, you know? Four. Four. Yeah, we still Family have plot? to get to <laughs> the trouble with Harry. <laughs> yeah, we still have to get to um, we still have to get to uh, Rear Window. Oh, right. But also maybe part of my feeling about this is that yeah, this reminds me so much of Saboteur too that I also love that it's like ah, you know, he was he was perfecting a movie he'd already worked on. In a I way. mean, be- is are you saying that in a weird way that this is Big Lebowski? Big Lebowski does this movie better. <laughs> Who wore it better? Who, I mean, um, would you go Big Lebowski or this? I am going to make a very quick call on my gut and go, I would go Big Lebowski over this. Okay, me too. Yeah, right? Yeah, I think I it would be interesting to put that movie on this list. It's a very strong character caught up in this insane world. Again, a MacGuffin really at the center of it. Um, That's so true. I didn't even think about the plot similarities. I was yeah. thinking more of something like a simple man, but you're oh, absolutely right. Yeah, I was just thinking yeah. about like what plot wise it would be. Yeah, you're right. You're on the run. Everybody's after you. Yeah. You can't trust. And you just want your carpet back. You sold me on this. You sold me on this. Although, if we're going to make a connection between this movie and comedy, here's one that I like really got caught up in Mm because I was confused when I first really heard it in this time. Okay, so you know when he gets arrested for the drunk driving? Yes. By the way, I just want to play a little bit of that drunk driving music because it's incredible. Thank you, Bernard Herman, for this. Cary Grant just looks so serious. He's like, I'm not going to kill myself. I am very drunk, but I'm going to really make this happen for myself. Like, I he's love not it. playing it silly. Then he gets arrested and his mom shows up. I love his mom. She's also into Catch a Thief. Mm-hmm. If you want more of this mom being amazing. Her name, by the way, is uh, Jesse Royce Landis. But anyway, um, she has the scene where he's like trying to prove that he really was forcibly uh, intoxicated and put into this car. And she has that offhanded line where she says, just pay the $2. Do you mean you're not going to do any more about this? Roger, 
pay the two dollars. And with that music being kind of comedic, I was like, what is that about? Is that an in joke, the two dollars thing, or is it really just you only had to pay a two dollar fine if you're caught drunk driving? I was like, how how is that possible? And it turns out that that two dollars line is a reference to this long standing comedy joke that existed before North by Northwest uh-huh. and after North by Northwest. Here it is from a skit in the movie, a version of the Ziegfeld Follies in 1942, where it's about a man who is spitting on a subway or accused of spitting on a subway. His lawyer refuses to let him pay the $2 fine and he winds up getting executed. The court finds the defendant guilty of expectorating in the subway and hereby finds the defendant $2 or 30 days in jail. All right, pay him the $2. Nothing doing. We'll appeal. Oh, pay the $2. No, you're a businessman and you can't afford to have a black mark against you. We'll take it to a higher court. Take him away. Oh, please pay the two dollars. Don't worry, I'll have you out of here in 20 minutes. Yeah, it doesn't happen that way. But do you remember where this show's I up later? I do, as we're <laughs> leading towards it. Uh, better off dead, right? Yes, I pulled the clip. It's the kid from the paper route who insists throughout the whole movie, completely, is always chasing John Cusack to get his two dollars. I want my two dollars! Amazing. I did not realize that North by Northwest has had that kind of uh, reach. Who knew that it was in conversation with Better Off Dead? One of my other favorite. Also, we have a very special guest for this week's episode. His name is Daniel Raymond. He directed a film that was nominated for an Academy Award. It was a short film called The Man on Lincoln's Nose. And it is the, the a film in honor of a man named Robert Boyle. And Daniel, could you tell us who Robert Boyle is? Yeah, so Bob Boyle, uh, lovingly referred to as Bob, uh, I met him when he was 90 years old. He was the uh, chair of the production design program at the American Film Institute. And I was a student, and he designed a number of Hitchcock masterpieces, starting with Saboteur, and then Shadow of a Doubt, and then North by Northwest. And it's funny, the, they picked up where they left off with the someone hanging off of a monument you know (laughs) all these years later Hitchcock's like who you know but loved Robert Boyle loved loved Robert Boyle and they had a kind of a they 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 sort of um patched up their differences after uh uh Shadow of a Doubt which is like Hitchcock's Hitchcock considers that I think his favorite picture and then he was putting together a project called North by Northwest and he and Bob uh got together and continued uh, after North by Northwest, pretty much nonstop, uh, they, where they continued to make The Birds in Bodega Bay and then Marnie back in location. So this was a real working partnership because when I think about those five pictures, they all have such a different look. You know, The Birds has such a different mm-hmm. feel than North yeah. by Northwest, than Saboteur. I mean, we talk about Hitchcock so much on the show and I think in culture as this like singular mm. auteur, but you see him through Bob Boyle's eyes as a man in a partnership. I mean, what is it like to work with Hitchcock? What is it like to have ideas and kind of help mold and shape and push? I think what what Bob Boyle shared with me about working with Hitchcock was how collaborative he was. 
And he had the luxury of having his own bungalow, right, on Universal. And he'd have an idea for a movie. And before a word on the script was written, he could have his core, you know, all his department heads in a room and around a table to talk about the picture and design the picture. And I learned that designing isn't necessarily the sets. It's designing the story, the narrative, the scenes, the, the, the images. And for him, he, he always would start with an image. In the case of North by Northwest, the idea was uh, shooting, you know, the, a big climax on Mount Rushmore. So he would gather all his department heads, including Robert Boyle, the production designer, Bob Burks, the cinematographer. He might even have Harold Michelson, who was the storyboard artist in an early meeting, even before the script is written. And um, Ernie Lehman, the screenwriter in the case of North by Northwest, and the costume designer, they'd start talking about what is the, the essential feeling of the picture. It's so interesting that with the birds, he said, Bob, come on, you know, I'd like to do this story based on the Daphne du Maurier original book and short novella called The Birds. And he hands him the book and says, let me know what you think. And that night, Bob goes home and reads the short novella and he starts to think about Edward Munch's The Scream as a kind of a primal scream, you know, man against nature and, and does a, a series of uh, color sketches, watercolor, pastel, and bring them. These are iconic images that you'll find in like Hitchcock at Work, books like that by Bill Crone. And of course, the originals are at the Academy Library. And right from the beginning, he'll have Bob sort of design the look and feel of the film. And then he'll have Bob go talk to I think, but up to iWorks to find out whether technically they can realize the film. But, you know, the other joke is that Hitchcock directed from the inside of a limousine and, uh, or, or from, from a telephone, you know, and, and, and when I shot the man on Lincoln's nose, I had the pleasure of going to Bodega Bay uh, where they shot the birds. Uh, this was 2000. So that was 37 years earlier. And I went up there with Robert Boyle and Harold Michelson who did the storyboards. And they shared with me all sorts of anecdotes about working with Hitchcock. Oftentimes, he'd be the, ins- ins- the you know that the weather. He didn't like bad weather, but you know they needed gray gray skies to shoot that film. And he'd be in the inside of a limousine and call Bob over, and Bob would come over and he'd roll down the window and Harold would be there. And all Hitchcock did was take his uh, right hand and sort of pat his chest exactly where he wanted them to frame the shot. Wait, when you said that Hitchcock directed from a limousine, I thought you were being metaphorical, but you were being actually literal. He was really sitting in a limousine yes. on the set of some of his movies, just being like, "That's ah, right." This so over here. I think he really trusted his crew. Bill Crone called called Bob Burks, Bob Boyle, Harold Michelson, and Albert Whitlock, his mat artist, Hitchcock's visualizers. They could paint his movies. Well, so let's talk about North by Northwest in particular. I mean. The Park Service would, of course, not let the actors film <laughs> on the real Mount Rushmore. But actually, mm-hmm. Bob himself did climb down the face of Mount Rushmore. I mean, yeah. what was he doing? What was he trying to do when he was up there? Like, what was he looking for? And how dangerous was that, that he actually did the thing <sighs> that they were trying to fake doing in a movie? Indeed. Well, he tells us that, so the original title, the working, I don't even think it was a working title. I think the original title was The Man on Lincoln's Nose. 
And as I'm making the documentary, indeed, who Robert Boyle was basically the man on Lincoln's nose. I mean, basically what Bob had to do was take a, a large format camera and take stills as he was kind of being lowered. He was on a harness and lowered down to the different parts of the monument that would be physically impossible to have like Cary Grant hanging bottle, you know, hanging. <laughs> in that suit of those loafers. Exactly. But in this case, I mean, this is such a great story because here's Bob thinking like what angles would Hitchcock want? And not, Hitchcock wasn't in, in Mount Rushmore with Bob when he was doing this. It was just Bob Boyle, the production designer, who's responsible for, for pre-visualizing not only pre-visualizing every camera setup and scene and shot that we see in the climax, but also devising the giant photographic blowups that the actors would be playing the scene against and pieces and parts and pieces of the Mount Rushmore monument in a Hollywood soundstage that I was fooled when I was a film student at AFI and I met Bob and I'm watching North by Northwest. I wasn't thinking, oh boy, this is like a great, you know, tech, you know, visual effects shot. I was with the characters. I mean, I've seen his um, floor plans for the, um, for the corn, uh, the cornfield sequence, one of the most suspenseful scenes. And then here's the production designer pre-visualizing it, basically, what does he have to go with on the corn sequence? Bob, I want you to find a place where Carrie can run, but he can't hide. And then the plane, the, 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 the plane is going to, to, to come down and, and, and chase him. But all right, what do you do with that? Well, how do you make that into one of the most compelling and significant sequences of all time? You design it. And by design, it's the decoupage, it's the shot by shot. Bob Boyle plans it out and you see this kind of hand-drawn floor plan with 1,000 arrows and each arrow <laughs> represents a camera setup. You mentioned one kind of interesting fallout from the North by Northwest no sequence, which is that Hitchcock saw how good matte painting could be and he put maybe yeah. too much faith in it going forward in his movies. <laughs> like what happened? Right, right. Well, Bob and, and, and Albert Whitlock were assigned uh, the, the beautiful uh, matte paintings were, were for Marnie, I think specifically is what you're referring to, because they, there's a, it breaks the traditional sort of idea of, of, of visual uh, realism. And they were more expressionistic in a way, the, 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 some of these matte paintings. So, so Bob said to Hitchcock, you know, these don't look real um and and it's a you know it's a street that that comes up against a harbor with a big ocean you know, a big ship and, and 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 the thing is they shot that scene from several camera heights and not always matching the perspective of the of the matte painting and what is a matte painting it's a it's a giant backdrop that is painted to look like, to make, make look real, basically. And there's these incredible artists known as matte painters who could, uh, with a paintbrush, sort of bring to life a cityscape, a mountainscape, a, you know, uh, and in the case of the birds, he, matte 
uh, Albert Whitlock would paint these giant backdrops. And what happened with Marnie is that Bob Boyle comes up, comes to Hitchcock and says, you know, we can redo it. We can redo these matte paintings if you want. And Hitchcock said, no, let's just shoot them as they are. And of course, uh, the critics noticed that it looked pretty it didn't look real now have you stood in front of like the map paintings from north by northwest right it's a great question because um what at the time at the mgm lot um they had kept the original map paintings uh, uh uh from north by northwest and it was just surreal to go back there with Bob Boyle all these years later. And they remounted it. And then and there's a, a shot in the documentary where he presses a, a, a button in the soundstage and the mat merges from the ground. And so that was, that was really amazing. So, yeah, in fact, I think um, these matte paintings of North by Northwest will be featured at the brand new uh, Academy Museum that's opening. Oh, soon. wow. I mean, I can only imagine standing yeah. in front of that is the closest you can get to actually standing in front of Mount Rushmore. Indeed, it's 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 amazing. It feels it's like it's standing in front of North by Northwest. You know, it's just like <laughs> whoa. <laughs> so it's so iconic, and it, and the color, the, the kind of the bluish tint of that film is really felt also in those in those beautiful uh, matte paintings. Oh my gosh, well, I can't wait to visit those. That sounds so exciting. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for, for this, talk, this talk. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it as well. It's always a pleasure talking about Bob Boyle and, and his work. Thank you very much. You know, Amy, before we get into the reviews, I just want to say that what I really love about this movie uh, is that you have these two set pieces, the the crop dusting scene, and you also have the climbing down Mount Rushmore scene, both done with this like kind of rear screen projection, you know, where there's a little bit uh, that they're shooting on a stage, and then behind them is the large images. And it really, I think it holds up. I mean, yes, you can see the seams of it, but it's funny. I feel like we're getting back to that style of shooting. I know on The Mandalorian, the technology that they're using are projection screens now. They're not necessarily always going into full green screens. Now they're doing these like kind of interesting. So you have like this big depth of field. So when you get in, you're in almost a 360 environment now. So like the CGI is happening with you. It's I'm simplifying the technology, but I think it's interesting that we're kind of stepping backwards to kind of make it feel a bit more real because the fear, like when they're going down the rock faces there, you, it, it, it feels, uh, it feels dangerous. That production design is worthy of kind of speaking about. It's really cool. Even the Frank Lloyd Wright house, which is not a Frank Lloyd Wright house, they use the interior was completely uh, made. It's just very different. But the production design here is fantastic. Yeah, God, that house is so beautiful. I love the idea of being in a theater in 1959 and seeing that house and thinking it's so modern. And how I wish our modern houses looked like that now. Oh, yeah. I feel like we're still in that mode when, whenever they make a modern house, it's just all glass. Yeah. And this has been going on since the 80s. No, I'm give like, me that fallen water house. Yeah. Give me that. I want you it. to live in a house that's all glass. I would sooner fucking die than live in a house oh, that is so no all privacy. glass. You want to live in one of those ex machina houses, Yeah, right? I want to live in a bunker for when the world ends. That's no, he's a... <laughs> Amy, what did people think about this movie? We know it's a huge hit. We know that, uh, you know, it, it makes a ton of money at the box office. Did everyone love it? Yeah, pretty much, honestly. But I think the reviews that came out bothered Hitch. And maybe I'm just psychoanalyzing and putting the big man on the couch. Mm-hmm. But I was reading the New York Times review, which was mostly positive, 
But the way that it was positive, the compliments that it gave, made a movie full of what should be twists and turns and surprises and shocks feel kind of rote, like everybody expected Hitchcock just to do this. And so I think there's something in the soft praise that might have gotten really under Hitchcock's skin. Mm -hmm. Like, here's what A.H. Weiler said. The director and Ernest Lehman, his scenarist, are not, to put a fine point on it, really serious about their mystery. The complications are introduced with the same rapidity of the ever-changing scenery. In any event, Hitchcock et al. take time out now and again to stop strewing red herrings and inject a funny scene here and there. Their climax is a bit overdrawn, and there are a few vague spots around the way. Perhaps Mr. Hitchcock and Lerman are kidding after all. He just makes it sound like this trifle. Like, it's great, it's mm-hmm. fun, it's popcorn. You know, the way that you might give soft praise to a Fast and Furious movie. You're like, right. oh, it's fine. And I think there is something in this lack of impressiveness. You know, this sort of like, great, you did the thing I kind of thought you'd do. That must have driven him nuts. But it's interesting because here's Hitchcock after Vertigo going, I want to do something fun and lighthearted and free of the symbolism that were was in my other films. And then people are like, yeah, you did it. And he's like, ah. I'm going to go black and white and murdery. Yeah, because I mean, even the writer, Ernest Lehman, was like, mocked people who look for symbolism in the movie. It's like, no, that's not what we're doing here. And I don't know. It's like, I think that he's probably a person who's never quite happy. And and that's, at least in all my my limited knowledge of him, makes me believe that I am right. That he just never, you know, even when he had the success of Psycho, it was like, oh, but now, but now what? So now there's only one question left, which is, is there a Simpsons? There are many Simpsons. Hey, They're almost finally. all, finally, we're back. They're almost all silent gags for the most part. There's a bazillion airplanes dive bombing people and there's a bazillion people getting pushed off of faces. There's like even one where Lisa Simpson, I think it's Lisa Simpson, pushes an Alfred Hitchcock impersonator off of a building. I'm like, <laughs> okay, 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 okay. But the one that I pulled is from an episode called I'm with Cupid where Homer is very jealous of the close relationship that Apu has with his wife. So he hears that Apu is hiring um, an airplane to, you know, write a love message in the sky and hire Elton John to sing her a song, and he decides to sabotage everything. The voices you hear are Apu and Elton John in a giant meadow. Yo, yeah, yeah. What's the matter with you, crazy old buzzer? Oh, get off you. You're making me mad. Me? My humble love note is turning into a Valentine's Day massacre. You think you've got problems? I just chewed my way out of a dog carrier. Oh, Elton John! That's my name. Well, not really. I hate to sound like a screaming fan, but... Ah! That maniac nearly killed us. Shall I take you to the pilot? (laughs) You see, because that is your song. I heard you. Amazing. I love it. Uh, Next week, we are going back into epic territory. That's right. We are going into the Stanley Kubrick film, Spartacus, starring Kirk Douglas. Um, This is a movie where it has another very famous line at its center. I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. I am Spartacus. And it keeps on going on and on like that. But it occurs to me that probably many of you have never seen Spartacus. So if you have not seen the film, in a sentence or two, can you describe what you think Spartacus is about? Give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And let us know what you think Spartacus is about, uh, either just based solely on that line or what you've 
pulled together from context clues if you've never seen it before. And just a reminder to head on over to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to check out some of our cool merch that we have there. The BDE uh, Jimmy Stewart shirt is selling a lot. Also, we'll be at the Alamo Draft House in downtown LA on September 26th. And the most important thing I could tell you is to remember to rate and review this show on iTunes. It does make a difference, people. So get in there, go do it. And if you want to follow along with us, you can go over to podschwag.com and order yourself a Scott C. poster of all the films that we were doing on the show. It's a beautifully designed poster, and it's one of those posters you can actually hang up that looks like art. It doesn't look like a John Belushi college poster. All right, we will see you next week for Spartacus. Are you Spartacus? We'll find out. love a classic chocolate chip cookie. Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.